You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Where is the darkest place that you've ever been? Maybe you were here last week and you saw Caden Moore, one of our interns who had gone on one of those mission trips and he went to out in the no cities around bush of Madagascar and he took a picture with his iPhone of the stars and he showed it to us. Maybe for you it's camping. Maybe it's this room right now for some of you. And some people are afraid of the darkness. They've done studies on this and the general number, it's usually in this range, 26 to 32%, but about 30% of adults actually have a fear of darkness. Another 32%, they feel uneasy. And so some of you started checking for the exits when they lowered the lights. And Where's the darkest place you've ever been? Some people love darkness, stargazers. Some creatives like it because it removes distractions. Some people feel like it reduces stress and anxiety. Some people are afraid of it because of past trauma, because you just don't know. And you're thinking right now of the worst thing that could happen that most likely will never happen. Last night, my wife and I were watching a documentary on Netflix. It's only one episode, so you can do it in one day. It's called The Deepest Breath. It's about free diving. I don't know if any of you have ever done free diving before, but it's an extreme sport. Uh, One of the people in the documentary says, with an extreme sport comes extreme risks. What they do is they jump into water and there's no scuba gear. There's no tank on their back. They don't use any of that stuff. They take one breath and it's really simple to figure out who does the best. It's whoever goes the deepest. Now, it's not simple to do though. Some of you think you've really done something when you touch the bottom of the pool. <laughs> or you're out on Falls Lake and maybe, I don't know how deep it gets, 20 feet, 25 feet somewhere, and you get down there, some of these divers go, not 100, not 200, on one breath, 300, some are getting close to 400 feet. And the way this documentary starts and what it does, it actually really focuses on two divers, one, Stephen Keenan, who is a diver from Ireland and eventually becomes a safety diver, and the other, his girlfriend, who he coaches and is a safety diver for. Her name is Alicia. She's from Italy. And it starts off by asking her a question about what she thinks about death, and the summary of her answer is, I don't. And you think about what she does, and they ask another follow-up question. She says, I guess if somebody has to die, they have to die. And this is obviously a pre-recorded deal. And then they jump into a dive that she's taking at a place called the Blue Hole. And rather than tell you about it, I thought I'd show you some of that. Notice no gear. She uses that rope to go down. already are breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth. This goes on for a while, um, longer than you would expect. I don't want to keep playing, but just share with you some of what happens in this documentary. You see some incredible scenery. Uh, You'll see the water changes where she's diving is a place called the Blue Hole. Divers sometimes call it the Diver Cemetery. They say in the documentary, it's more dangerous than climbing Everest. More people have died here. Outside, 
of this place. On the coral that comes out of the water, there are monuments to about 100 different divers that have died there. People keep going. They want to be here and do this. And she's going into a cave. You notice it keeps getting darker and darker. This particular dive can go all the way down to 394 feet. However, uh, this documentary uh, has a lot of different people from different parts of the world, and they all use meters. So I'm sitting there during the documentary. How many feet is the meter? Um, she keeps going into this darkness. But remember, no matter how deep you go, you've got to turn around and come back up on one breath. One diver that was interviewed for this documentary said this is the most dangerous dive on all of Earth. What happens in the documentary is you start to get to know their careers. You see these amazing shots of the water, underwater, above water, interviews with different divers. You meet some of their competitors and different people say different things. They go to her childhood and show when she was about 13, 14 years old and started doing this and talking about how she had a special gift. And one person said she had a supernatural ability to do free diving. And they go down into these dark places what happens in this scene, you don't know until the end of the documentary, but at the beginning is that she goes down, keeps going further than what you saw, then turns around, swims back up, but it goes bad. I won't tell you all the details right now. Her boyfriend, coach, safety diver, who in the documentary, is, we're told, is the greatest safety diver in the world. Can't find her. He enters into the darkness to rescue her. When she comes up out of the water in the first scene, you don't have to be a medical professional to know something's wrong. Her face is glazed over, and I'm just asking myself the question, is she dead? As you watch the documentary, you find out that both of them have blacked out before while diving, and apparently that's what happened in that first scene, because then it clips to her dad and different people and great scenery, and you're like, what happened? And you're hanging for 90 minutes, and maybe I'll tell you what happens. But last week we talked about how Jesus enters into a foreign world and he enters into lost lives and it left us at a spot where we stopped and it necessitates that we go to the next spot because if you're going to enter into a foreign world, this place is not our home. Jesus is preparing a place for us, but we are not there yet. We haven't been there, but that's where we belong. We're still here with a mission to be sent out for him and if we're going to enter into this foreign world and enter into lost lives, it means we must enter into darkness. But today's message is going to be different than any of the other messages in this series so far. Because in this series so far, we've talked about reaching our city, reaching lost people, going around the world. But the reality is you don't have to go anywhere to enter a dark world. We live in it. And today what we're going to do is focus on how Jesus enters into the darkness of our hearts. See, Jesus enters the darkness of our hearts so that he can send us out to be a light to the world. That's Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. But before we get there, let's see what he does. Because we believe at Southbridge that God does spiritual transformation in us that leads to gospel saturation out of us. It's got to be poured into us first before it can flow out of us into this world around us. You already live in a dark world. We're going to look at what it looks like for Jesus to enter into ours. Remember last week, we talked about how Jesus left heaven, came to earth, and how a lot of times as followers of Christ, we think about what it's going to be like for us to go to heaven, but what was it like for him to leave there and come here? 
And we talked about how heaven was a place of no mores, no more darkness, and he's arrested at night. No more pain, he's flogged and beaten. And so Jesus leaves a place of no mores, and he comes to a place where it's right now, and it's right here, and it's happening all the time, and there is crying, and he weeps over people rejecting him. And there is death, not only does he die, but he has friends like Lazarus dies, and she's a widow in a funeral. There is death. And he's coming as the light of the world. We talked about that as he's the God-man. It says in John chapter 1, in verses 9 and 10, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And then one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Why? Well, there's a story a little while later that happens in darkness. In John chapter 3, there's a man, a doubter. His name is Nicodemus, and he arranges a nighttime meeting. He's wealthy. He can set everything up, and there's a famous verse in John 3:16 that maybe you've heard, and then verse 17 talks about Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But a, a couple of verses later, there's this verse. It tells why the world rejected him. In verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil, but Jesus enters into the darkness. And we saw last week that the men in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at are in darkness. It's about 8 o'clock at night, and there's a lot of darkness happening in their hearts. There's chaos around them. It's the first Easter, and people are arguing. There's conspiracy theories. Somebody stole the body. There's other people who are like, I saw him. And there's all kinds of stuff that's happening. And Jesus is appearing to people. And there's an earthquake. So there's natural disaster. Angel comes down. The tomb is empty. Jesus resurrected. And a lot of stuff happens in one day. And where we come into, it's now 8 o'clock at night, probably. They're all uncomfortable. It's total chaos. And this is what happens in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it's a Sunday, that's the first day of the week. Saturday was the last day of the week, their Sabbath. The first day of the week, the doors being locked, so they're behind locked doors, where the disciples were, here's why, for fear of the Jews. That's why they're here. Jesus came and stood among them. We joked last week about what was that like? Him knock on the door, he doesn't just pass through, he's not standing in front of them. He's among them, he's with them. And I don't, they gotta be talking about whether the resurrection's true or not. And Jesus has to be standing there thinking, once they see me, <laughs> this is gonna be fun. He's among, he's right in the middle of them. He's among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. Words of grace. We know in Ephesians 2, Jesus is our peace. He came, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead so that we could have peace with God. We know that he promises as followers of Christ, he will give us the peace of God. He wants to reconcile relationships with us and other peoples. There's peace with each other. He is our peace. And instead of condemning their fear, instead of confronting their sin, instead of saying, hey, why haven't you obeyed yet and their hesitation and delay, he says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So even in a resurrected body, he still has some scars. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, two times, because when things are repeated in the scripture, they're being emphasized, peace be with you as the Father. And that's the key to what we're talking about the last two weeks. As, as, as the Father 
has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. Oh. And remember, he could have appeared to anybody. Pilate, Caiaphas, Herod, but he comes to these guys. Who, this is John chapter 20, not John chapter 21, when Peter's restored, he's still in his sin. In fact, at the beginning of John chapter 21, even after Jesus enters into this encounter with him, not just in the darkness of night, because it's nighttime, not just in their fear of being locked up, fear of the Jews, when the darkness is going on in their hearts, he still goes back to his old way of life at the beginning of John chapter 21. And Jesus gives words of grace, peace. Anybody here need words of grace today? Anybody, and you don't have to show a hand, but I think maybe I shouldn't even go to church because of some sin you did this week or being hurt by the church or if anybody really do and you're pretending like things are a lot better out here than they are in here and Jesus enters in and he gives words of grace. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what's been done to you, what you've done, he offers peace. And here we see in this passage he enters in to their darkness. He doesn't stand on the sideline and shout, hey, when you guys are not too afraid, unlock the door and come out here. I got some stuff for you. Hey, do you know how wrong you are in there? Change your mind. Come hang out with me. He enters as, as, as the Father sent him, and he enters into darkness. Only one point today. It's just this. Jesus enters into the darkest parts of our hearts because he's going to send us out to be the light of the world. And you see here, it's clear from the text that he's entering into their fear. And you think about the fear that people have all throughout the Bible being sent into dark places. Moses, he's gonna go stand before Pharaoh, the leader, a wicked leader, of one of the greatest empires in all of history, and he's gonna say, let your slaves be free. Make your life harder because I told you to. And God told me to tell you. <laughs> You don't believe in God. Kind of like Stephen in that documentary. He's not the one who needs to be saved, but he's going down into dark places to rescue somebody else who's lost. Sends Moses. Joseph, in the book of Genesis. He gets told early on he's going to have a great platform. <laughs> but he didn't know how he was going to earn it in prison. Being trafficked by his own family dark places. In fact, you could almost read the Bible and think this is the theme of the Bible. Daniel, we're going to do a sermon series on Daniel in the fall. And you look at how in the world do you have conviction and courage in the midst of a culture that's all compromise? Well, Daniel did, and so did some other people. They were living in a world that was not their home, Babylon. And they stayed faithful to their king. In darkness. You look at the book of Acts, where they go, Paul going to jail. Ooh, but Jesus, he was the one who did it first. The Father sent him. And here you see it in this passage. He goes in, and I, and I love here that it's really clear. John's obvious with they locked the doors. Have you ever heard, maybe some of you have grown up in church and you've heard an evangelist, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Jesus is a gentleman. If you don't let him in, He's not going to enter. And listen, I don't want to mess up any evangelistic rallies. I want people to be saved. I would never say this in the middle of that kind of invitation. But Jesus doesn't need you to unlock the door. 
I want to go up to the evangelist afterwards and be like, oh, that's awesome, nine million people got saved. Hey, what do you do with this passage? Because it says the doors were locked, they didn't let him in, and he was just there. Because Jesus can go wherever he wants. John Piper, talking about the doors being locked in this passage, and the incarnation of Jesus, uh, theologically, said this quote that I thought would be beneficial to share with you. He says, Jesus can go where no one else can go. And this is not a Star Trek episode that he's introducing. He can go where no counselor can go. He can go where no doctor can go. He can go where no lover can go. He can reach you and reach into you anywhere and any time. There is no place where you are and no depths of personhood that you are which Jesus can't penetrate. Jesus' resurrection from the dead fits him to do what no one else can do. And that's what he's doing here because he's entering right into their fear. In fact, the Bible's really clear. If you look at verse 19, they were behind the locked doors for fear of the Jews. Here's the problem with fear. Fear is a trap. It'll get you stuck. I remember when I was a kid watching Indiana Jones Goonies, shows like that. I used to think sand traps were going to be a problem. You ever seen these memes that are out now for kids of the 80s and 90s? Really thought that was going to be a bigger part of my life. It has not been. And then I wonder about trap doors. I was on Pinterest and saw this picture the other day. It's a little pixelated, but you'll get it. If you go, if you have that at your house, I don't trust you with anything, just so you know. Just the fact that you bought that. That probably is a trapdoor I'm leaving. Even if you invited me over, hey, you never showed up. That's right, and I won't be back. See, the thing was a trap, but nobody wants to get stuck in a trap. But a lot of us are controlled by fear far more than we recognize. And the Bible is actually pretty nuanced on fear. You know, you see these pithy statements, especially during COVID. Faith over fear. Well, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. If you're going to be accurate to what the Bible teaches, it says fear over fear because the Bible talks about a good fear. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise knowledge. You don't even want to know. You can't handle the truth, fools. And there's another kind of good fear. It's a, an awareness of what danger you're in. doesn't mean you won't take the risk, but it's good to know what could happen, like a free diver does, like a follower of Christ should. You read Hebrews chapter 11, and it goes through, and it's like, some people were raised from the dead, and Daniel, mouths of lions are shut, and like they've got superhuman strength. And these, but if you get to the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, it says, some women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain and even, wait, they wanted to be martyred? Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. This isn't their home. So we get this idea that maybe TV preachers are a guy with a really good smile that has a globe spinning behind him. I don't know why. But if you follow Jesus, you'll get a Rolls Royce. Listen, if you have a Rolls Royce, love you. Hope you know Jesus. I don't have anything to do with that. Let me tell you what. This is the great commission in John's gospel that we're looking at when it says, as, as, as the Father sent me, so I send you. We see in the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses. But wait until you receive the Holy Spirit because you can't do this on your own. It's an impossible mission. 
Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you, and I'll be with you. Always. Until you come home. Luke, the gospel of forgiveness will be preached. Whether you do it or not, God's going to do it. He invites you in, send you out. But first, he knows, he knows these guys are in the kind of fear that's a sin. He's told them that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Don't fear those who can just kill your body. Fear God who can throw you into hell. Fear is what will overcome the fear. Because when you fear God, it's not just that he can throw you into hell. You realize he's done everything possible for you not to go there. And his perfect love, when it enters into your life and you experience that spiritual transformation, that's when the gospel flows out of you. Perfect love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 Perfect love casts out fear. The fear of God is the beginning of understanding that perfect love. It's fear over fear. Right fear over wrong fear. They've got wrong fear. For fear of the Jews, they're behind locked doors. Fear of man. The fear of man is a sin, just so you know. Christian counselor Ed Welch wrote a book. It's out of print, but you can still find it on Amazon. Maybe like a penny with $99 delivery, but it's on there. He says, when people are big, God is small. Some of you, your God is small. And the way you know that? Because you're controlled by other people's opinions. Jesus came so you could be free. And when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? But a lot of us are, are living in fear. He knew these guys, if you just look at the, like, who's there? Thomas isn't in there, probably isolated himself. A bad response to what's going on in this tragedy, and, and he pays for it. Some of it is a missed opportunity. We know that's oftentimes the consequence in the Bible. Fear causes anxiety, sleepless nights. You were, have you ever had an argument with somebody who wasn't there? Don't want to admit it? I win all of mine. <laughs> I'll say, then they'll say, then I'll say this. And it's like, probably a conversation that never even happens. Some people call that worry. See, behind fear, there's a lot of other stuff. And these guys, they're in a moment of fear. And Jesus could rebuke that. But instead, he brings words of grace. And he enters into this because he knows these guys. Ten of the eleven are going to be martyred. Peter is going to be crucified upside down. We're told that in the next chapter. And it happens. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. James will be beheaded. The history is fuzzy on some of these guys. There's not as much information. We believe that John, who writes the book of Revelation and this gospel, dies of natural causes. Well, he didn't get off easy. They boiled him. Philip, crucified, maybe upside down. Bartholomew, we believe, was flayed alive until he died. Matthew, stabbed, possibly beheaded. Thomas was speared to death in India. Thaddeus, shot by arrows. Simon the Zealot crucified. Here they are hiding for fear of the Jews and Jesus enters into their fear because Jesus enters the dark places and if they stay in the fear, I don't know how many sleepless nights they have. I don't know how long they lock themselves in a room and have whatever conversations they're having but they will miss out like the Israelites did in the wilderness because they were afraid of the giants in the land and God promised them. They missed, a whole generation missed blessings because of fear. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 3, today, if we, you and me, if you hear his voice, the Holy Spirit, do not harden your hearts 
like they did in the wilderness, a lot of us haven't applied what God has said to you through guest speakers, through the Bibles, just reading verses through our pastors in this series because of fear. Maybe of what other people will think, maybe that you'll get canceled, what it mean for your job, what it, you know, you might not get enough likes, I don't know. You miss opportunities. But what's behind the fear? And that's really what we're gonna unpack the rest of this message today because Jesus enters in really clearly into this fear. But remember the context of what's happening. He's also entering into their grief. Anybody here maybe currently grieving? Grief's a weird thing, even when you accept loss, it's like you never leave it. Many psychologists believe the cycles of grief include five stages, some debate that. But often denial, anger, depression, could be loss of a loved one, could be loss of a dream, could be loss of what you thought life would be like and it hasn't gone as expected, it's significant. An article in Psychology Today I read this week said that it's one of the most painful things that human beings experience is grief. And you think about this, it's on the evening, it's the first Easter, so Jesus has only been dead for a few days. I don't know the disciples personally well enough to, where, to know where they might be in that cycle, but they're grieving. They're grieving Judas. And that might be hard for some of us to process because we think, well, he's bad. I mean, we think you know, how he betrayed Jesus, but remember how shocked, when he left the Last Supper, they still didn't know he was the one. One of you is going to betray me. He gets up and leaves. Go do what you're going to do. And then they're asking the question, is it me, Lord? Is it me? They're not going, well, we should have known it was him. Then he shows up and he kisses Jesus. Right, Luke chapter 22, when he betrays him, he says, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? One guy, famous guy from a long time ago, said this. He did not refuse his treacherous kiss. He suffered his sacred face, and he, he allowed it, he gave it, his sacred face to be touched by the lips of the vile traitor, and he even called him friend. But that's not what a kiss is for. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 18, we read that Judas killed himself. Have you ever had a friend or someone you know or love take their own life? That's always shocking. It's hard. Denial seems obvious because no way, no way. They or how? People automatically, do they even know? Like we're trying to get answers. So they've got that going on. And their Lord and Master that they've left everything for has been crucified. And Jesus enters in to their grief. Have any of you lost anyone? Would you even be bold enough to raise your hand and say, I lost somebody, a kid, your parent, a spouse, friend, somebody, other people might just be encouraged to know they're not alone. A lot of folks have lost people. You might enjoy this quote. I don't think we have it for the screen or maybe they've made it for the second service, but C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't know that grief felt so much like fear because oftentimes behind our fear is grief. We're afraid of what we might lose. We're afraid of losing the life that we want to have, losing control, losing a loved one, losing our own lives. And here these men are certainly grieving and Jesus enters in to their grief and says to them, peace, Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace. We know that he gives us peace with God through his death, and many of you are 
professed followers of Christ, but what does it mean for us to have the peace of God? So that's interesting because once you have peace with God, you can have the peace of God, and we're told that it's a peace that surpasses understanding. Philippians chapter four says, do not be anxious about anything. Easier said than done, thank you, Bible. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, there's something about gratitude. Present your request to God. But if I'm even in this moment of anxiety and and have a request for God, gratitude, and the peace of God, this is a promise, this is a promise, which transcends all understanding, this world won't get it, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so here's what happens is that Jesus enters into our grief. You may never stop grieving. Lord willing, you'll come to a spot of acceptance of your loss, and Jesus will meet you there. And he'll enter in just like he does with these men. He'll come into your grief and be your peace. Like when he shows up at a funeral for his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. And Mary and Martha, they've got questions. We don't like how you did this. If you had only been here. And then he talks about the resurrection. Like, yeah, yeah, that stuff's fine, like for heaven and stuff one day. But right now, I'm in pain. And Jesus doesn't give the answers they want. But he's there. And Jesus probably isn't going to raise your loved one from the dead like he does Lazarus. But he'll meet you in it. He meets us in our fear. He meets us in our grief. He also meets us in our doubt. You look at this passage, and there's a guy in this passage. He gets a bad nickname. Thomas the Doubter. The Doubter Thomas. How many of you have heard that before if you've been in church? You heard the Doubter? Like, even when I say Thomas, you're like, yep, that's the Doubter guy. What a terrible nickname. Do you ever have a bad nickname? You don't have to tell it. Maybe you tell your small group if you trust them enough. Um, you get some bad, hey, that's two-ply. Why? He's always got Kleenex hanging out of his pocket. I don't know. You get these different people. I read there was one baseball player. His name was Rain Delay because he was so slow as a pitcher. I probably never knew his nickname because I was like, if I turned that channel on, I'm like, I'm not watching this. Take it too long. So, round mound or rebound, Charles Barkley because he's surprisingly able to jump high in spite of his round figure. And so, not a super flattering nickname. And so, we dog Thomas out here. I don't think it's fair. Especially when you put this in context. If you brought your Bible, go up a little bit further into John chapter 20. There's an Easter sermon there that most pastors ignore. One of the most entertaining parts of the whole encounter to me. Look at verse 14. And you see Mary and what happens there. You talk about doubter. I mean, Mary, she's there. The tomb is empty. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And so here's Jesus, and he's going, you're grieving. I'm not dead. He's risen. Hey, you're getting ready for April. That'll be awesome. (laughs) Um, You ever seen a story where there's a mistaken identity? You know, sometimes celebrities will dress up. I've seen Uncle Drew, any basketball fans here? Kyrie Irving dresses up like an old man. Uh, Kyrie Irving is, uh, regardless of what your thoughts are about his flat earth beliefs and some of those things, uh, he is a great ball handler as far as basketball is concerned. All over the place. He'll go to gyms, parks, dressed up like he's like 70 years old, gray beard, right here, walking in like he's an old man. And then they give him the ball and he's like, people are like, what? They call him Uncle Drew. Oh, you didn't realize it was really Kyrie Irving. And 
There's other stories. I, I saw a young lady being interviewed on Jimmy Fallon one time, and she was talking about how she was at a party, and she thought she knew the guy that she was talking to as Ed Shireen. Shireen, is that how you say it? I don't know. My mind doesn't work like it used to, so how does that? Sharon? No one got that joke. It just wasn't good. Anyway, um, <clears throat> it was actually Prince Harry. <laughs> you think about how the two of them look, and... And he put glasses on. He was like, that's not Ed. And so, and she said in the interview, um, he wasn't wearing a crown. Like, of course. (laughs) Jesus didn't look as Mary expected, but mistaking Prince Harry for a singer, a basketball player for an old man. This is Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. Look at this. I said, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. That's a bad mistaken identity right there. Creator of the universe is standing in your midst. Hey, can you go get me some tomatoes? I go, you the gardener over there. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And then she must have recognized his voice because look at what, Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai which means teacher, John tells us, because he knows that we don't know Aramaic. Jesus enters her grief. He said to her, do not hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead, tell my brothers. I'm ascending to the Father. Tells her to tell them to go to Galilee. They don't. They're hiding in a room. Locked doors. And Thomas isn't there because some of us in our grief or in our sin, one of the things that we do, which is a bad decision, is that we isolate ourselves. And so Thomas misses out. And then his friends come to him. So think about this. Judas has killed himself. Jesus died on the cross. Then your friends, Peter's denied them. Like they're not the most trustworthy guys. They show up. We saw the scars in his hands and in his side. Shut up. John doesn't tell us everything he says. I probably said, shut up. He doesn't, it says that he didn't believe him. He said, unless I see it myself, I'm not going to. So now we call him Thomas the Doubter. That's exactly what you would have said. And earlier in the Gospel of John, no one remembers him for this. If I'm Thomas, I'm up there going, I hope one church gets it right. And maybe he's watching. I don't know. You can't see us. Whatever. In John chapter 11, before Jesus goes to Lazarus' funeral, the other disciples are saying, you can't go to Jerusalem. They'll kill you. And Thomas says, John 11, verse 16, let's go with him and die with him. Oh yeah, that's my guy. Everybody needs like three to five people in their life like Thomas. This is going to go bad, but I'm with you. You're your ride or die. That's how you want to say it. You're real brothers and sisters. You don't have a thousand of them, but hopefully you got a few. And Jesus does die, and then Thomas is so broken, he goes alone, and then they come to him with news that sounds too good to be true. You ever been told something's too good to be true? Off around late night TV, just decide you're not going to make purchases after 9, 8, 9 p.m. or something. Like, just decide. Just gonna... Remember, I remember when email chains were a thing. Some of you don't even know about that. You're so young. Um, the prince of the Philippines would email you and say, I just need you to send me your bank account. And it's like, why are they emailing me? Like, how do you know me? Now you get a call and somebody pretends to be me and they're telling you, we're going to help out some widows, send me gift cards. That's happened to me multiple times. People have written people, I will never ask you to meet me in a dark alley to help some orphan, okay? I'm not asking you for monetary things to be given to the church that no one can trace. 
That's not me, by the way. Or if it is, don't do it. That's just a bad idea. Some of you get friended on Facebook. You're like 75 and overweight and some fitness model from the Ukraine reached out to you. No, that's some guy in China in a basement and you're going to get scammed. Too good to be true. Thomas would want this to be true. It's too good to be true. No way. Not unless I see it myself. Then you look what happens a little bit later. A week later, his disciples were in the house. So they're still hiding behind locked doors even after he enters into their fear? Yep. Um, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace. He said, a third time? A third time? In their doubt, he says peace? That's significant. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas... Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas didn't touch him. Don't miss that. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Mm. How overwhelmed must he have been with Jesus entering into his doubt. Some of you are doubting today, maybe because God didn't do something you wanted him to do, like Mary and Martha were doubting, or maybe like John the Baptist, and life hasn't gone the way that you expected, and he's doubting the character of God. Let me tell you something. I've doubted some things in my past that are foundation of the ministry I have today. I remember doubting whether God's word was really from God. It wasn't just men who made this up, and now it's foundational, hopefully to my whole life, certainly to my ministry. I remember doubting whether hell was real, rustling through that, not wanting it to be real, trying to figure out a way to say that it wasn't real and explain it away, even using the Bible. And now it's a foundation that I don't want anybody to go there because it's very real. Jesus, if you want to read an author on hell, read Jesus. Your doubts today might be the foundation of the ministry that God has for you tomorrow. Some of the strongest, most powerful ministries that have ever happened. Guys like Josh McDowell has preached here. Pastor Dave traveled with him around the world. He's a skeptic, a self-proclaimed atheist who set out to disprove Christianity. And now has written a book called Evidence of the Man's Verdict. <laughs> Talks about the proof of the resurrection. He wants people to know you don't have to stop thinking in order to believe. In fact, Jesus is presenting evidence that the man's a verdict. When he says, touch my hand, touch my, my Lord and my God. Lee Strobel, my Lord and my God. He was a Chicago journalist that was disproving, self-proclaimed atheist, disproving Christianity, and like Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and now has written a book called The Case for Christ for other skeptics. Your doubt today might be the foundation of your ministry tomorrow. Jesus will meet you in the darkness of your doubt. There's another scene in that movie. This isn't the end, but in the middle where it goes back into an old dive that Alicia, that world-class diver does, the one that you saw in that first scene. She's trying to break the world record, 104 meters, which is, by my iPhone calculations, (laughs) 340-ish, a little bit more than that, feet down on one breath. They show this dive, and the fun part about watching this dive was they went away to the dad who was in Italy and everything he says is being translated. You know, you're reading the bottom and so it's like, man, I'm watching, I don't want to read, but I'll listen to this guy. All right. He's live streaming it. He's watching his daughter do this dive, which is great until it goes bad. 
They lost the sonar connection to her. They couldn't see her anymore. The cameras didn't have her anymore. And you start seeing the dad's stress. He's rubbing his neck. He's, they're talking about it on the top of the water. Hey, she should be, we should feel the rope at least. She should be back. Steven, her boyfriend, coach, safety diver, he goes down. Another safety diver goes down. And I looked at Shannon, I'm like, why don't they have submarines? Why are these guys? They don't have to do it. She just has to do it. So, I don't know. If you're a free diver, that might be offensive to you. It just doesn't make sense to me. Go get her. And I show the dad. And I'm thinking about my kids. I'm thinking, this guy may have just watched his daughter swim away and never come back. Can you imagine? Then, about 30 seconds later, she comes swimming up just fine. Huh. The safety divers aren't touching her. She's going to throw. She just broke the record. It's amazing. Then they go to the dad. <laughs> he says, I just saw her emerge from the endless darkness. Some of you are in a dark place of doubt. It's dangerous. People have been destroyed there. Don't isolate yourself. See, if I were going to label Thomas, I'd call him honest, Thomas. Be honest about your doubt. God can handle it. Read the Psalms. And he already knows what you're thinking. Don't hide. Don't hide from him. He will meet you in your doubt, and the things you're doubting today might just be the foundation of what he wants to do through you tomorrow. Because he goes to the dark places so that you can be light in this dark place. It might be a passage where you have to go through. Grief, doubt, fear. This one's messy. Shame. It actually becomes more clear in the next passage for Peter. As you see, even after this encounter with Jesus in this room, and then again, a week later with Thomas there, he still goes back to his old way of life. He's not restored from his sin, remember? He said, if everybody denies you, I'm with you. And Jesus said, Satan's asked to sift you. When you turn back, in other words, you will turn away. Strengthen your brothers. Which tells us another thing of grace for Jesus. He's got a post-failure plan for your life too. He knows that Peter has already blown it lots of times. He's going to really blow it. And so will some of you. Maybe because of your doubt. Maybe because of grief. Maybe you're questioning God's character. Maybe you're just angry at people in the church. Whatever. Five years from now, some of you, just look around this room, you will not be here because you're not following Jesus. You can come back. Some of you may be online today. Some of you popped in the door here today. That's why you're here. You can come back. Jesus will meet you in the shame. The shame's tough. Peter's in the shame. Shame, we know, causes us to hide. We see it at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for this reason, man leaves mother and father, be united to his wife, the two will become one. We see marriage is a man and a woman, and as evangelicals, we just want to talk about that. You know the next verse, pretty awesome? We should have a whole conference on this. They were naked and felt no shame. That'd be awesome. All the guys were like, when's the conference? Where do we do it? I know. That was before sin. After sin, when she doubts God's character and it destroys the world, Surely God didn't say, she eats the fruit. They sow fig leaves on themselves and hid from one another. Then they hear God and they hide from him. And look at what it says. 
Then the eyes of both of them, verse 7, uh, were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's like playing hide-and-seek with a two-year-old. You know where they are. But He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You ain't naked. You're wearing a fig leaf. We just read that. Now you're lying to God. You're so hiding. It's like a spiral. See, shame is a huge trap and lies behind many of us in our fear. I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but Brene Brown does a pretty famous TED talk on shame, and she's got a Netflix thing on vulnerability. She talks about this a little bit. She says this about shame. Shame is the swampland of the soul. Shame drives two big tapes in your mind. So she's from the 80s or 90s too. Tapes uh, were the way you heard audio. It's basically, it's a Spotify. It's a streaming, okay? Just listen to this. Here's what this, the streaming service says. Those of you are younger. It says, in your mind, never good enough, and who do you think you are? Shame is not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. All of us are guilty. Shame is something else. She then later classifies it into genders, which if I did, you guys would probably all be so mad, but I'm going to quote this woman who is not in the church who says this. She says that women hear this, do it all, do it perfectly, never let them see you sweat. It's a web of unattainable, conflicting expectations of who we're supposed to be. She says, men here do not be perceived as weak. So while you try to live your perfect life, ladies, for social media or for a small group of friends or for yourself or whoever it is, and, and you're getting exhausted, and, and then somebody compliments you on the thing that's exhausting you and it fuels that you have to do more, and shame's driving that. Men as you have to conquer, whether it's the business world or a woman or some goal or a physical thing or another man, or like, ugh, shame's driving that. And then you know, you don't want him to think you're weak, but then the Bible says it's in your weakness that Jesus has made known. Have you ever thought to yourself, it's not just that Jesus has made known to the world through your weakness, but made known to you because he meets you there? Or when he gives the invitation, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. He doesn't know the tape or streaming service playing in the heads of the women that are there and the woman who had just been caught in adultery. And look at the context of the passage. The religious people who are wearing themselves out trying to prove they're good enough. And they know they're not good enough. And that's true. But he is. And that's the gospel. And you don't have to do anything to earn it. See, the thing with shame is it often makes us feel dirty, and that's why we hide and we isolate. Have any of you here ever power washed before? Anybody power washers? Isn't it so satisfying to see the dirt come off? Do you know there are websites and, and Instagram channels that are actually watching other people power wash? Oh, we think we got a picture here. They show before and after. So you ever done that? I, was like, I've been, I remember one time doing my front porch. All I had on was uh, uh, some swim trunks, and I had the power washer and like some flip flops, and it was going great. I'm like, this is gonna look brand new. It's awesome. And I didn't realize I hit uh, a hill of red ants until they started climbing up my leg, and they let you know at that point. But all I got is the power washer, so I started shooting myself. Thankfully, I had baggy shorts on. I started. So my, what do you think my neighbors were thinking? Like, we knew he was crazy, but what's going on now? He's naked, basically, shooting himself with a power washer. 
Hmm. See, the problem with shame is a lot of us think, well, I'll just fix it. Like, uh, as a guy, maybe it's, uh, I did this bad stuff, but I'm going to go do the good stuff. I'm going to advocate. I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to show, I'm going to just do a lot of stuff for Jesus now to kind of undo the stuff I did against Jesus. Doesn't work. Ladies, you know all your insecurities, but if I could just get everybody else to think that, and this might not be as gender specific as Brene Brown says, but we all know those tapes that play in our heads and And you see that Jesus confronts when you try to clean up from the outside. And he tells the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, the inside you're filthy. And so what Jesus does, he enters in to the filth that we've created with our sin, but he does a cleansing from within. And before Jesus ever said that to the Pharisees, the Old Testament said it and Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 22, he, he tells this whole nation of people, although you wash yourself. With soap, and he wasn't saying it. Some of you might be OCD and wash your hands or do these germaphobes. He's not talking about that. He goes, and you use an abundance of cleansing powder. It's their religion, the false hope they're giving each other, saying that everything's okay. He says, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. But Jesus enters into our sin and does a cleansing from within. That is pretty amazing. In the shame. Still not restored. He's going to blow it more. Peace. Who needs words of grace? Peace. You see, the way that that documentary ended, and so if you don't want to hear it, you're going to watch it later. La, 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 la. Right now, here you go. Earplugs in the back. You're going to get them. There you go. The way the documentary ends is it picks up that first scene. On the first scene, she comes to the surface and her face is glossed over and you're like, is she dead? What's happening? And then she starts telling what happened that day so you know she didn't die because she's telling the story. She said, actually on that die, that was a reenactment in the first scene. What happened is she gets down to the dark spot and she decided she didn't want to use a rope at the place called the Diver's Cemetery, the Blue Hole. She was going to keep going deeper into this dive. And they had practiced lots of times. And so they knew the exact time when she was supposed to come up. And Stephen was supposed to meet her at the end of the rope and help her get back to the rope. So then she could get to the top. However, she got lost in the darkness, disoriented, couldn't find the rope. So does, like many of us do in life, she's just trying to figure it out. And so she's using the coral to try and get to the top. But she doesn't know even if she's swimming up. She can't see the light. Their timing was off. They missed each other by about 30 seconds. And so Stephen is frantically trying to rescue her. And they show a scene where there's a diver below and they just missed each other. And he swims into the darkness to get her. And you don't know if either one of them are going to make it. Then he swims up in front of her and she says, and then out of nowhere, he was right in front of me and he grabbed me. And earlier in the documentary, they had shown that both of them have blacked out before. And they said, if you black out... You just got to be on your back. If you're on your face, you'll die. She said he did everything he could to get me to the top. His mom comes on and says, Stephen knew someone was going to die that day. He did everything to make sure it wasn't her. And then back to her. He rescued me, but I couldn't rescue him. He died. The rescuer gave his life. He went into a foreign world a dark place, to rescue a lost life. And he laid his own 
so it could happen. That's what Jesus did for us. And as, as, as the Father sent him, he's sending you. But you shouldn't go unless he's entered in for you first. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm just going to pray that Jesus enters into whatever's happening in your heart right now. If you don't know him as Savior, and maybe you've got some doubts, I'm going to tell you right now, you'll never have it all figured out. Will you believe that you're a sinner, you need a Savior, and he's the only one that can rescue you because he's the only one that died for you and rose from the dead. He'll give you life. Confess your sin. And the Bible promises he'll rescue you from darkness. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, if you believe in your heart and confess to your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be rescued, it says. Go look it up. So will you do that? Some of you have been rescued. doesn't mean you're immune from fear and doubt and grief. Some of you are angry. Some of you are depressed. Some of you are in denial. Some of you questioning his character. Don't do it alone. Let him meet you in it. Meet you in those moments of your doubt. You might be laying the foundation for tomorrow. We let him meet you. We invite him in. Some of you need to be cleansed. You're ashamed. Maybe it's ashamed of your appearance. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Ashamed of some disability. That was part of the plan too. What a mistake. Maybe you're ashamed of something you've done, something that's been done to you. It's wrong. Jesus was there. Just like the father runs to his son, the prodigal. You confess that, and he he already knows. He's just glad you were dead, now you're alive. He'll make it new. Better than power washing. He's from the inside out. He's making all things new. If you confess your sin, he's faithful. He's just, he'll, he'll cleanse you. Fallen righteous, maybe something you've done, you don't think anybody could ever know, and carry each other's burdens, confess into one another. He's got healing in store for you, and will meet you and take you to places that are incredibly uncomfortable because of where He wants to send you. So you will see, see with new eyes your doubts, your grief. You may not have the answers you want, but He's there and He's got answers. He's got resurrection life. Will you invite him in? Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.